Hello, One World podcast listeners. Today, we have the amazing opportunity to speak with a scientific researcher striving to expand the world's understanding of the mechanisms of climate change and the environment. Please welcome the program officer for the Johns Hopkins Center for Food Production and Public Health Program, Brent Kim. Hi, David. Thanks to be here. It's an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, so we're very excited to have you for our fourth episode for our podcast. Um, so we're basically just going to get started. Um, could you please introduce yourself and tell us more about your background? Sure. Uh, my name is Brent Kim. I'm, a, like David said, a researcher at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Uh, you know, my background is a long story. I'm not sure quite where to begin. Uh, I Long ago, I actually worked as an artist, uh, various software companies developing historical video games. Um, from there, I transitioned to being a math teacher high school math teacher, which is a pretty big change. Um, and then while volunteering internationally uh, in rural India, um, my partner at the time, she was a nurse and I was inspired by the amazing work that she was able to do with a medical background, um, working with low-income populations um, to help alleviate the medical burdens that they were having to deal with. And so, you know, seeing her work and then reading more about the work of pub, my, some of my public health heroes, like Paul Farmer, who's a medical anthropologist who's been working around the world on multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. All of that inspired me to want to move transition into the field of public health. And so there at Johns Hopkins, I began to study fields like epidemiology and biostatistics to try and understand how to, the, the spread of infectious diseases and how to prevent them. What happened was uh, during my, I probably the second week of my studies on my master's program, I saw a colleague give a presentation on the impact of food production on the environment and public health. And seeing this presentation was such an incredible eye-opener for me because at that time, I had no idea that food was so closely connected to issues related to public health and the environment and climate change, um, airborne emissions, respiratory health, I mean, you name it. Think of any public health or even economic crisis that we have to deal with. And there's one, if not multiple links to what we call the food system. And so that was my introduction um, into the work that I do now. So I've been at the Center for a Livable Future, which is an interdisciplinary center based at the School of Public Health where we research, we teach and communicate, and we try to inform policy on the food system, which essentially spans everything from farm to fork and everything in between, whether it's how we produce our food, what we're eating, how it's processed, all of those things are intimately connected to the health of our planet and the health of our people. So in a nutshell, that's what I do now. So if we trace back to your um, volunteer work in India, you said you worked with a colleague nurse. Is that really what started your um, passion and was like an eye-opening experience for your interest in public health? It was very much so. It, uh, yeah, just the work that she was able to do with a medical background was so inspiring to me. Um, and then she introduced me to some books about some other people working in the field of public health. Um, and it's 
you know, our, our motto at this School of Public Health is, it's a little bit ambitious, but the motto is saving lives thousands at a time, right? So if you think of a doctor, they work with one patient at a time and doctors, don't get me wrong, have critical, such an important role in our society, treating one patient at a time. But I think I was drawn to this idea of public health where you're taking a broader, broader what we call a systems approach, where you're working at the level of policies or education or changes in infrastructure that could have sweeping changes on the health of entire populations. Yeah, so that sounds great. Um, so from the person that referred me to you, I heard that you follow a vegan lifestyle. Um, is that still true today? Or um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, that is true. So I've been on a whole food plant-based diet for close to eight or eight or so years now. Um, but before that, I've been uh, mostly vegetarian since college. So um, you wouldn't know it from looking at me, but I'm over 40 years old. So I've been following this mostly plant-based diet for a long time. And I like to say it keeps me young. Of course, folks on the podcast can't see me. But anyway, I'm bragging about my youthful looks. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I don't always share the fact that I'm on a plant-based diet, particularly as someone in the scientific community, because I don't want people to think that because I follow a vegan diet, that that somehow colors my interpretation of the evidence in any way, right? Because as a scientist, our priority is to put the evidence first and speak truth to whatever we discover in our findings. And whether that makes a plant-based diet look good or if it makes a plant-based diet look bad, I am drawn to the field of science because I wanna seek the truth on any subject matter, whether I like the result or not. Um, so my diet is a very personal choice, of course, as, as it is for everyone, right? Um, but, you know, working in this field of food systems and, you know, a lot of my research has to do with food and climate change. You know, I do think it is important for people in the scientific community, not only to talk to talk, sorry, not only to talk the talk, that's a tongue twister, <laughs> not only to talk the talk, but also we need to walk the walk. I mean, we should be setting an example. I mean, who am I to write all these research papers and to speak to policymakers and to speak to journalists about the urgency of moving toward a plant-based diet? Who would I be if I didn't follow that dietary pattern myself? So, um, you know, for me, the choice to follow this diet was the way in which I felt that I could align my dietary choices with what we're seeing in the scientific evidence. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, when I first saw you, I thought you were in your early 30s. So you're definitely right. About <laughs> Thanks, David. Forward. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so as a research program manager at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, um, what kind of research do you oversee? Um, you touched on public policy um, and public health, but is there anything particularly, um, a few topics you would like to delve into? Sure, I'd love to. So again, our work is on the food system, which is extremely broad, right? Food touches on everything. I mean, there are thousands of different topics within the food system. So, you know, if there's any one key take home message that people get from this podcast, it would be to really appreciate the importance of what we call systems thinking, where we're not looking at any particular piece of the system in isolation because it's all interconnected. What we eat, 
the animals on the farm, the chemicals we use to grow the food, how the food is transported, the policies in our country, the food that's available in our grocery stores, communities where food might not be available in our grocery stores, right? These are all interconnected pieces of this incredibly complex web. So I hesitate to say that, oh, I only look at just climate change, right? Because just climate change touches upon everything, our entire economy, right? The next hundred years of our human civilization. So it's so important that we just think about these things as interconnected parts. That being said, to answer your question, uh, most recently we've been focusing on uh, sustainable diets, which my focus has been pretty heavily on climate change, but we're also interested in other impacts too. Like how is our how is agricultural land being used? Um, deforestation, uh, the amount of fresh water that's being used, right? So sustainability has many different environmental dimensions to it that we're all concerned about. So, so sustainable diets is one focus of my work. Uh, and we also have a team that is a little bit of a different topic, but we're also looking at urban agriculture. So what does it mean to grow food in cities? And specifically, most recently, we've been looking at uh, the concentrations of heavy metals like lead or cadmium or arsenic that may be present in soils as a result of driving cars or cold-fired power plants or industrial activity. Um, and we are just working with farmers to make sure that the food that we're growing in cities isn't contaminated with those kinds of heavy metals, which can have harmful effects on our body, particularly children. Um, and just a reassuring note, our findings are showing some very good news that produce from urban gardens and from urban farms is actually very safe to consume. So that's the short answer and that's the good news. Yes, I'm um, definitely sure that our podcast listeners will be relieved to hear that. Um, At least in Baltimore. I mean, every city is different. Yeah. But. Um, so if we dive into your past research studies, um, you did a piece on the EAT Lanza diet, which consists of doubling consumption of fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, while cutting down sugar and red meat by approximately 50%. And this was a solution that was given by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. Um, so what did your research discover in this particular field? So we've actually done several papers, including that one, <clears throat> exploring the impact of different plant-forward dietary patterns in different countries around the world. Um, I'm using the term plant-forward very broadly to encompass any kind of dietary shift toward plant-based. So plant-forward doesn't mean exclusively vegan. We also use it to include things like lacto-ovo-vegetarian, where you don't eat meat, but you still have milk or eggs, or a pescatarian diet or a mostly vegan diet. So um, there are a lot of different sort of, um, I think of them as stepping stones with a carnivorous, you know, sorry, not carnivorous. No one's exclusively carnivorous, right? Well, omnivorous would be a better word for it. Omnivorous on one end and then completely plant-based on the other. Plant-forward kind of describes these stepping stones that includes vegan, but also the stepping stones on the way to being vegan. So yeah, so we've done a number of research papers looking at how these different dietary, dietary how these different dietary patterns might play out differently for climate change in different parts of the country. Because you can imagine, right, a, a a pescatarian diet in the United States 
might look very different in another country like Kuwait, just as an example, where most of the population does not consume pork. We also have to think about how foods are produced in different parts of the world. So your listeners are probably aware that Brazil is one of the major drivers of the greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change because they are clearing the Amazon primarily for cattle to graze and to a lesser degree to grow feed crops, right? So if a country is importing their beef from countries like Brazil or Paraguay, where there's a great deal of Amazon deforestation, that beef is going to carry with it an even larger climate change footprint than it would if it were produced in a different country. Um, and so one of our findings there, right, is, you know, there, there are high income countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, where, you know, this isn't surprising. This has already been in the literature, right? We, we're the highest, we are among the highest meat consuming countries in the world. And so naturally, the greenhouse gas emissions from our diets in high income countries tend to be the highest. Where it gets complicated is when you start to look at low income countries. So Indonesia, for example, um, or countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. These are countries where a large share of the population suffers from chronic health conditions or um, I should say chronic malnutrition uh, or conditions like stunting, right? Where children don't, you know, it's not children don't reach their height milestones, but, but it's not just about height because a malnourished child as they grow up later in life, uh, it has impacts on their IQ, on their cognitive abilities, on their long-term health, right? So chronic malnutrition, not unlike climate change is one of the world's greatest crises that we're dealing with right now. And when we talk about sustainable diets, when people think of sustainability, the first thing they often think is the environment, right? Sustainability is about the environment, but sustainability is actually much broader than that. For a diet to truly be sustainable, yes, it has to be ecologically sound. So we have to think about the environment, but it also has to be nutritionally viable. If it doesn't meet the nutritional needs of a particular population, we can't call that diet sustainable. It also has to be affordable, right? So if you're proposing a diet, but people can't afford the ingredients, then it's no longer sustainable because people can't afford to eat those things. And the ingredients must be physically accessible. So people must be able to find and access those foods. It also has to be equitable, right? Because if it's a diet that only the most wealthiest people can afford, then it's no longer sustainable, right? So now we're thinking of sustainable, now we're thinking of sustainability in a much broader sense. So then when we start to look at some of these low-income countries that are really struggling with malnutrition, in contrast to the United States, countries like Indonesia, right, sorry, back up, in contrast to the United, in the United States, right, we, we consume far more protein and far more animal products than anyone would ever need on average for their health needs. But in a country like Indonesia, there's a large percent of the population that is under consuming key nutrients. So for them to meet their nutrient goals, 
it is likely for them, for those populations, increasing their animal product intake, even just a small amount, could have dramatic benefits on their health. Right? I know, I understand within the plant-based community, um, we uh, there's often an opinion that animal foods are only bad for our health. But as scientists, we have to be very nuanced when we're looking at the nutritional profile of something. So on one hand, yes, the evidence shows that there are clearly health benefits from a whole food plant-based diet. And there are clearly health risks from a high red meat diet, right? But at the same time, it is also true that many animal foods are also high in key nutrients that developing children might need. And this is particularly important in low-income countries where the population might not have access to the same diversity of healthy whole plant foods that we have in the United States. We also know, for example, that from research that vegans need to supplement with B12 because that's the one micronutrient that we can't get from plant-based foods. Well, in a country like Indonesia or countries like Ethiopia or in Sub-Saharan Africa, they might not have easy access to supplements like B12. So the way forward for a country like the United States is very clear. We dramatically need to reduce our animal product intake for climate change and for our health. At the same time, there are some low-income countries that might need to increase their animal product intake, at least at least until we can come up with a better, a different way to do it. Um, and so those countries, the low-income countries are actually going to increase their greenhouse gas emissions when they make that shift, right? So if globally, if we need to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, but low-income countries need to increase their greenhouse gas emissions, that means for countries like us in the United States, there's even more responsibility for us to lower our greenhouse gas emissions to offset the increase that may have to occur elsewhere. Sorry, that was a long answer. But <laughs> I don't. I, f- I feel like um, a lot of our podcast listeners um, probably didn't take that into consideration. Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, if you look at this from like a historical lens, um, the reason that the powers of the world are the powers of the world is because of industrialization um, and. And that obviously comes with a slew of environmental impacts, climate change impacts. And now that some developing countries are trying to undergo that process now, um, but especially with like the climate agreement that was set forward by um, the Paris Agreement, uh, like how do you think that like shift will balance out? Because obviously a country, um, especially a developing country, would obviously want to um, better themselves and their socioeconomic um, status on a global scale. So how do you think that this will play out um, in the long run? David, are you sure you're in high school? <laughs> you sound like a professor. I mean, that is just a brilliant question. I mean, where do you get this? I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's such a good question. Uh, well, you, you touched on a lot of really excellent points. I mean, one of them, <clears throat> right, you spoke to the fact that, you know, there are heavily industrialized countries. And then there are a lot of lower income countries that are understandably looking to follow the model of the United States. And so, you know, one might ask, well, who are we, the United States, to tell another country, hey, you should really, you know, keep your meat intake under control and 
drive a little bit less because of climate change. I mean, it's true. We do have to be careful about that. But on the other hand, I think some people could see it as condescending if the United States, you know, we've, we've set such a bad example in all of those regards. I mean, we are doing terribly as an example for sustainability. And yet now we have to look at developing countries or, or low income countries and say, okay, you know, what do you need to do to keep your greenhouse gas emissions under control? So that part is complicated, but, um, you know, the, the good news I think is that I've been inspired from speaking with leaders and government representation, government, sorry, I've been inspired speaking with leaders and policymakers in some of these lower income countries who really do truly recognize and understand the urgency of climate change. And they are prepared and setting forth plans to make sure that their countries, uh, yes, they want them to develop economically, but how can they do that in a way over the long term that doesn't repeat the mistakes of the United States? And so that's why we as a center, uh, we're working with brilliant colleagues at organizations like the United Nations World Food Program to try and think through what a sustainable diet might look like for a country like Ethiopia and Indonesia. And we're very lucky to have those connections because it means we can have conversations with, for example, the Ministry of Agriculture in those countries. And they're on board with the climate change message. Of course, they wanna also make sure that the diets for their people are also nutritionally viable. So sometimes that, you know, that becomes the, the needle that we have to thread, right? We both has to be, we both have to make sure that the diet is climate friendly, but it also has to be nutritionally viable recognizing that not everyone has access to the same resources that we have in the United States. Um, and I think that's where something like uh, my colleagues who are nutritionists of which I am not have pointed out that this is where something like supplementation becomes very important in many of these countries, right? So there are some who hold the view that everything must be achieved with whole foods and that you know supplement, supplements because they're technological are somehow bad or imperfect or flawed, right? And, and I think as a counterpoint to that, I think we really need to keep an open mind. We need to keep all solutions as possibilities on the table. Uh, because if we can introduce supplements in an affordable way in some of these countries, it can help um, address some of the nutritional deficiencies where the diversity of the diet might not be there yet, while also helping them to keep their animal product intake lower than what it might otherwise be without the supplementation. So, um, you know, again, these are complex nuanced solutions that have to take many factors into account. It's, you know, if it's anything I've learned through this research on an international scale is that it's, it's never as simple as just telling everyone, hey, you know, just follow a plant-based diet. I think that's great advice in the United States, but when you move to other countries, the message gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, for sure. So um, so we're reaching the end of our podcast interview. So what do you think is something that our One World um, podcast listeners can do to help? There are a lot of ways we can look at that. That's a good question, right? Because we, you know, through our work, we try not to just focus on the problems. What are the solutions that we can pursue? both as individuals and as a society. So, you know, I think one of the most important things 
that we can do is recognize that our food choices, our food choices don't occur in a vacuum. They occur in the context of policies. It's for me to buy food is a corner store or a gas station, and all they have are chips, meat, and hot dogs. I could hear all the best advice in the world about following a plant-based, healthy plant-based diet, but if this is all I have access to or this is all I can afford, it's going to be really hard for me to follow that advice, right? So our food choices occur within this environment that is shaped by policy. So I always tell people, and these are actually the words of Marian Nessel, who is a renowned nutritionist. I love what she said. She said, vote with your fork, but also vote with your vote. So voting with your fork, we're all familiar with that, right? So for us who have the means to do so, one of the most impactful decisions we can make as an individual, not only for our health, but for the environment, is to move toward a plant-based diet. And for some folks, that maybe going vegan is not even on their radar and they are not ready for that. And that's okay. I think we have to meet people where they're at and we have to meet them in a way that is non-judgmental because the moment we start demonizing people, that's when they shut down and it, it, I guarantee it almost always has the opposite effect. And the research has also shown that for folks who go from you know, full on meat to vegan overnight are less likely to stick to a plant-based diet than the ones who make a gradual transition, right? Some people can go vegan overnight and it works for them and that's great, right? But I think for a lot of people, it's gotta be baby steps. One step at a time. That's how behavior change works. And maybe some people don't make it all the way to the vegan. Maybe they stop at, you know, they're vegan for two out of three meals of the week. Incidentally, that's one of our interesting research findings from our study was we found that adopting a plant-based diet for two out of three meals, right? That was inspired by Mark Bittman has a diet called Vegan Before Six, where your breakfast and lunch are vegan but your dinner, you eat whatever you would normally eat. So that vegan before six diet had a lower climate change impact than the lacto-ovo vegetarian diet in which you eliminated meat completely, but you still had milk and eggs in your diet. And part of the reason for that is because people forget that milk also has a high greenhouse gas footprint. Anyway, um, to sum it up, there are a lot of different flexible ways that people can move, take these plant forward steps. They can be pescatarian. They can be two-thirds vegan. Um, you know, one of our diets that we analyzed was we called it a low food chain diet, where it was mostly plant-based, but people get some protein from animal foods that actually have a low climate impact, like insects, for example, are one of the most sustainable foods, or bivalve mollusks like oysters have a very low climate change footprint, and actually, when they're farmed, they actually improve water quality. And for folks who are concerned about animal suffering, oysters, they kind of have a nervous system, but they don't have a brain. So they're arguably fewer concerns about pain of the animal. So a lot of different ways people can do it. So that's voting with your fork. But again, uh, going back to that other piece, vote with your vote. We absolutely have to vote and advocate and support policymakers who are working to change our environment in ways that make the most sustainable decision, whether it's the car we drive or the food we eat, making that decision the easiest decision for us to make. Yeah, so um, I definitely agree with you. Um, I recently went vegetarian 
and I'm trying to convert to veganism, but as you said, it's definitely a difficult change. Um, especially like since like my culture revolves so heavily around me, I've been trying to distance myself from that. Um, yeah, and I feel like it's so important for me to, um, especially if I'm advocating for uh, like environmental reform, like through this podcast, like for me to um, basically like put money where my mouth is essentially. Um, so I plan to uh, convert to like full veganism by um, the end of February. Um, yeah, so a bit of an ambitious goal. Um, yeah, but hopefully like uh, our One World podcast listeners learned a lot from this interview um, because I sure, I certainly did. David, congratulations on taking those steps. And you raise another good point too. I know we have to wrap up, but you mentioned culture too. And that's something I forgot to mention about a sustainable diet. It also has to be culturally appropriate. So if we're looking at a country, again, using Indonesia, an example, we're not going to go over there and push the Beyond Burger. Uh, but tempeh, right, fermented soy product, that actually comes from Indonesia. So, you know, you can find, we have to make adaptations to different countries. And so tempeh is a perfect opportunity where it's, it's already part of that country's food culture. And it's a very sustainable food. So there can be a win-win for culture there. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I didn't, actually didn't know the name of the um, food and toy team. So thank you so much for uh, dedicating your time for us today. Uh, hopefully our One World podcast listeners learned a lot. Um, yeah, uh, any parting words? I mean, honestly, I could continue the conversation for another hour. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I know we probably have to wrap up. So maybe we can do a follow-up interview sometime. Definitely. Thank you. It's, it's, been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, I'm really, uh, really pleased of the work that you're doing. It's so important. And, you know, thank you to your listeners for tuning in and to learning about these important concerns.